It's the second cup of Joe and John with Joe Elvis and John Dwyer. I, I Never love it. I love it. I, I listen to it on a plane. I listen to it all over the country. I don't you know why I like that a little, little too riff. much. I, I, you, you're, you're a little too into yourself, I think. So? So? Coming from you? I know. Hey, this is exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> called the kettle kettle, isn't it? <laughs> I love our rendezvous here, baby. <laughs> I just, enough about me. Let me tell you about my statistics. <laughs> yes. Uh, hey, everybody, this is going to be a great show because not often do we do this. Where we we look full disclosure, we tape the the, the podcast um, a few weeks in advance, so we try not to get into you know what happened last night or so forth because that would be stale. We like to go evergreen, but the fact is because of our scheduling conflicts, uh, our guest today, by the way, I'm so huge, freaking pumped about this. Rock, I still can't believe you know of him, Legend. let alone know him. Sure, this is good stuff. Sure, so we're gonna do that, but we're gonna start with um. Joe, I went back to South Bend. I saw some old friends, and so you wax poetic, and you think about, and then I'm I'm reading up on our guests, and I'm thinking, he's ah, this is just fascinating because he's going to have so many great rock and roll stories and sports stories. Uh, soundtrack of your life, and I and I actually put one together. I put uh, this is probably three or four years ago. I did it for a buddy. Uh, he was my best friend at the time. We've had a falling out, and I still can't even explain why. Because <laughs> of your soundtrack. Well, it would have been. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> Uh, and I was looking at, and this is going to, and every song has something. And it's not a really a great story about it, but look at this. All right, I'm starting with Needle and the Damage Done. Okay. 15 years old. I'm trying to get into a strip club with my 16-year-old friend who we, at the time, I don't know, we had fake ID. 15, I'm 15 years old. And I remember being out in his creepy dad's van and we park on the side and, oh my God, will they let us in? And we did the Billy Joel look. So we kind of looked older, like with sports coats and a tie, like who are we fooling? And I remember listening to the Needle and the Damage Done. Neil and Young song, oh, great song. Oh God, so good. I'm glad it's going this direction. It's Did, not uh, like Glass um, Tiger or... Oh, oh, we haven't, are you ready? Um, Night Moves, obviously. Sure. Uh, good times roll with the cars. Uh, Sarah smile. I I'm yeah. sorry. I like Daryl Hall, John Oates. Loved him. Okay? I grew up in Philadelphia. Could you without Man Eater. Yeah. Well, Hall uh, and Oates are just trem- Daryl Hall's incredible. Uh, still is right. Uh, Hotel California. Duh. Um, Shining Star. I loved Earth, Wind, and Fire. Commodores. Ohio players. I was. I had some funk in me. Mm-hmm. So forth, so on. So so. What would be on one of your your like? Oh, I want a new drug. That's pretty good. Cook with fire. Heart. That's the beginning of a uh, dog and butterfly. It's kind of a deep cut that sure. a lot of people don't. Dreamboat know. Annie. Yeah. Era. Heartless. Yeah. yeah. Oh, heartless. Yeah. So anyway, I, I had no problem with Ann or Nancy. Rick Springfield. I see. That's. <laughs> Here's the question I have for you. I'm still not over Do that you, one. Wait, because you and I drive convertibles. <laughs> Do you ever pull up to a stoplight <laughs> and and turn the like you're jamming on Rick Springfield and affair with the heart, and all of a sudden you pull up to and I'm like, I got to turn this down because you know the car next to me is going to go. What are you thinking? Yes, unless yeah. he's gay and then he's following you somewhere. We Tracy Cornett. WSMV anchor was on here and John <laughs> revealed that Rick Springfield was a part of the uh, CD collection back then. And she actually loved Rick Springfield and was on general hospital with him. And, and you so, thought he was dead. I thought, I thought he was dead. dead or alive. And you thought he was He's dead. still alive. I know. Give me, give me uh, one or two. Okay. So my, mine is really an era. Um, 
So I grew up in Delaware, outside of Philadelphia. Elton John was big. Philadelphia Freedom was an enormous song. 1976? Yes. And I had my Phillies yearbooks, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Richie Ursick lived across the street and played drums and was just one of those phenom young kids that played the drums. And so I would stand outside. We all had basements in Delaware. So I could stand outside his house through his, hearing through his basement. And he would play Yes Roundabout. Oh. And just nail it. And here's me trying to play, you know, the freaking Eagles. That's the day where where we got our Koss headphones on and we're playing along to songs. And Richie nailed it. He was like, that's that's how it's done. That's how I want it. Whatever happened to him? Richie uh, Ursic is now like a number two guy in Microsoft in Seattle. Okay, yeah. So he didn't. He did not take off. <laughs> Haven't on seen that. him in years. Friends on Facebook, but just one of the greatest drummers. So yes, Roundabout had a big thing, but it was more of an era, a '70s era. I loved AM radio. So at night when I'd go to bed, I had my AM radio with the little plug, one plug that went in the one earpiece that you got, and I'd listen to Philadelphia radio, which was Hall and Oates. Um, all the TSOP, the Sound of Philadelphia, that great rhythm and blues era, uh, the Carpenters superstar, uh, Glenn Campbell's Wichita lineman. That that feel was my intro to music. Well, um, we have a guy. You talk about drumming, and you talk about having rock and roll classical knowledge. We are neophytes compared to what's going to happen. It with, is with this guy. Our guest is. Hey, we know people. Let's take a spin through Joe and John's Rolodex. Where's the stop, Joe? Man, we're in the in the G's, and we are uh, we're going to talk some drum, some drum killer here today. And just like my analogy, when you hear somebody play and you go, "That's how it's done." Uh, Steve Gorman has been the backdrop of of rock and roll worldwide for decades. And Steve's been a Nashvilleian for a while. Maybe you've heard him on the radio. He's been on the radio with me back in my 105.9 The Rock days. You remember we'll that. Talk about, oh, probably we'll talk remember about that, that in a second. Uh, but Steve Gorman has a backbeat and a thunder and a foundation. And uh, I affectionately call him the rhythm custodian uh, because... Uh, when all else fails in the band, which are dysfunctional bass players, guitar players, and singers who think they know everything, it's the drummer that is driving uh, driving the show. And so, uh, man, welcome to the second cup of Joe. And John. Steve Gorman. Steve, I can't believe you said yes, and thanks for being here. <laughs> my, my mind is spinning on, on all of the information I've already heard from the both of you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could, I could, I could have dropped in at any point. My first concert ever was heart dog and butterfly tour yeah. Rupp arena. Uh, yeah. Uh, earth, wind and fire lifer. Um, I, my, my last fall, uh, as a student at Western Kentucky, 1986, I road tripped to South bend for the preseason big apple NIT tournament when Western rolled through South Bend and destroyed the David Rivers, Donald Royal fighting Irish. Was that Matty on, Cullen was the coach or no? That, Do you remember was, with, Wash, with with Western? Who was your coach? Do you remember? No, it was the ill-fated guy from UTC, Murray Arnold, who replaced oh, yeah. Clem Haskins. And, uh, and Murray Arnold had one problem. He refused to acknowledge the existence of this new thing called the three-point line. Yeah, they, they started that. And we went um, to the finals of the preseason Big Apple NIT at Madison Square Garden, lost to UNLV in overtime because he would not shoot threes. Oh, man. We were ranked fourth in the nation. I'm over it now. Apparently, apparently you, uh, for you to say David Rivers and Ken Barlow and those guys, that's... 
And that was a pretty good Irish lineup. No, yeah, it was, for no, you guys was, to go up there and, and whoop them. It wow. was a really good team, and we beat them, I think, by eleven. And uh, at me and about five other buddies, and we we were this close to having to be escorted out of the arena sure. on Notre Dame's campus because we were letting everyone know where we were from. <laughs> <laughs> did you that. did you play basketball, Steve? Steve is a power forward, probably six five two. 15, It's a big guy. Well, it's actually 6'3", uh-huh. and, uh, and and I wish it was 220. I'm, I'm on my way back. <laughs> um, I did play basketball. I played soccer first, and so those were my two sports from, you know, soccer from the age of like six. I was grew up just outside of Baltimore, and then moved to Kentucky at the age of 10, where people said, I'm sorry, what's that ball with... The red and the, the white and black, uh, you know. No, no soccer here. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, and so then basketball. But I, five older brothers, I'm the runt of the family. Basketball in the driveway was just a lifelong, you know, thing. How sharp did your elbows have to be to, to just, just that, one, to eat at the food table, but also to play basketball was with much, those guys? Oh, the, 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 the dinner table was a far more competitive realm, yeah. uh, trust me. It was, And as the baby, I didn't get, you know, I was kind of coddled. I mean, everybody, no one had a beef with me. I'm the youngest of eight kids, Whoa, wow. and it's a it's a great place to be. You know, what I mean, I, I don't think I walked until I was like 16 months because everybody wanted to carry me. And, and there's no pictures of you, <laughs> None. because because no, no, we, no, yeah, your parents have long done that. We had we had slides in my family. <laughs> yeah. Pull out the projector every year. Yeah. And uh, the oldest kids, the the 50s babies, oh, reams. Reams. Racks of slides. Racks of slides. And then yeah, I'm the eighth one is like, from, eh. from birth to the age of 14, there's like 11 pictures of me. Thank that I'm God there is a school picture. Yeah. Because yeah. or else you wouldn't, right. have had, you wouldn't have had one. That's but right. You, were, you were born in color, so at least they're all color pictures. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> so what, uh, what brought your family to Kentucky? Um, I'll go back to Michigan. I was born in Muskegon. My dad worked for Brunswick up there, the bowling. Company. Oh, the bowling. Yeah. And um, pool tables. I and, think. uh, yeah. And okay. we, we also had a Brunswick pool table. We had Brunswick bowling lockers in our garage oh, for everyone's eight. athletic equipment. Oh, that's eight. how cool. We you look like cool. a varsity locker yeah, room with yeah. all the guys. Yeah. We had, we had, uh, like coffee tables were those mid century Brunswick uh-huh. bowling alley side tables sure. that they look like Jetsons furniture. Yeah. yeah. And I look at my mom, I'm like, do you know what we could get for those on eBay right now? Like original 1961 oh, yeah. end tables? They'd be amazing. I bowled my whole life. I've got Brunswick balls. Yeah. The Black Beauty back in the days. Well, well, so we were a Brunswick family. Brunswick acquired a yacht company in Baltimore called Concord Yachts. Uh, don't ask me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so shortly, you know, I was a toddler and my dad was offered a chance to go like move up from plant manager to white collar world, be a VP at a yacht company. He said, let's go. Uh, I think he forgot there were eight kids who had lives, but you know, my oldest brother about to be a senior in high school, we're moving to Maryland. Like, Oh my, that's how it goes. That's the old school. Yes. But we ended up so, so Michigan to me is just something I was aware of on Saturday mornings in the fall. You know, we cheer for Michigan, but I have no connection to the state other than, and grandma lives there. But, uh, but so I grew up in Maryland, just outside of Baltimore, a place called Severna park till I was 10. But those are the big years. That's when everything kind of comes, you know, into focus a little bit. And then uh, that company, the, the boat company went under. The oil embargo wreaked havoc on the yacht industry. 73, 74, yeah, not, not yeah, good. My brutal. dad was a car dealer, a Ford okay. dealer, and he got rid of them. Right. He got he got out of the business, and, and his father was so upset because it was a family, three-generation Ford. <sighs> and he's like, but but no, this isn't working. Yeah. There's well, nothing now, to do. No, nothing to do. Yeah. We uh, then my dad got a job offer to take over Ebonite Bowling Balls, which is based in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Ah. 
And so then at the age of 10, it's we're going to Kentucky. <laughs> and uh, and I still remember, you know, sitting us down. There's uh, the, the youngest four kids moved. The oldest four were already college or out. So the family split in half. Four stayed on the East Coast and four moved to Kentucky. And he looked at us and said, we're moving to Kentucky. And he's a former Marine barking, booming voice. Makes me sound tiny. This guy's voice was horrifying, actually, as a high school basketball player hearing one voice in the gym scream rebound constantly throughout. Do one thing. Well, yeah, that's it. Rebound, that's it. young man. That's all he cared about. Yeah. Um, no, but he said, we're going to Kentucky. And the three of us, me and Doug and Dave, my brothers, uh, at this particular moment, just stared at him blankly. And he said, do you know anything about Kentucky? And, and I remember one of them said, well, there's the horse race. Yep, that's yeah, right. Well, there's and then that. someone said, uh, Daniel Boone, I think. And uh, yeah, and, <laughs> one out of and I remember thinking, there's like chicken or something, fried chicken maybe, <laughs> you know, like that was it. And then next thing you know, we're off and, uh, and here we end up in Hopkinsville. So isn't that great? Just how life, uh, I, my, I came from Delaware to Nashville. That began my uh, Western Kentucky Yep. Start and Steve and went to Western. Went there. Yeah, Kentucky. but you you didn't know him there. I'm I'm probably older. I'm 59. He's younger. You're 64. So Steve's oh, yeah. probably. We met. I mean, we yeah. we crossed paths a Absolutely. little bit because of Tommy Womack and yes. because of government cheese. That's correct. Um, but we, yeah, we ended up there. My sister also had moved down. The four youngest kids all went to Western. She started, and then what else are you going to do? You know, I, I mean, I think I applied in July after high school graduation. Cause I was like, Oh, I guess I got to go to college <laughs> now. And, and they, I guess you. I'll go to Western. And yeah. you know, I already knew people there. Right. I'd been in the dorms. I felt comfortable. Oh, I, mean, oh, I, I bet was, you were in the dorms. It was that or Murray state in there. It was that or Murray state. I'm like, I don't yeah. know. East or West, which That's way do I true. go? I'll go to Western. That's correct. That's yeah. the storyline of everyone in that era. Uh, I was in Nashville. So Sumner County was an in-state tuition. Yep. All my friends went to Tennessee. I didn't want to go there. So I went to Western Kentucky, not I, knowing anybody. Everybody I met it. my freshman year, Nashville or Louisville. I yes. mean, that was it. But Nash, yeah, the Nashville people paid in-state tuition at Western, so which made a lot of sense. So, so let's Yeah, go ahead. No, let, no, go ahead. Let me finish. Okay, go ahead. No, back. No, go back. No, you go. So let's uh start that ride on this great life of drumming from there. You're at Western. That was my question anyway. Yeah. You're 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 gigging in Western. No. Um no, no. I, 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 I talked about it a lot. I said I was a drummer. I, in my mind, was a great drummer. Yeah. I just didn't have any drums and had never done it before. Other but than I, that, you were fine. I spent my entire life air drumming and listening to records and obsessively thinking about being a drummer. That's I mean, from the time I was five. Um, I got an out. My oldest brother was playing in a community college basketball game, and my ticket won the Door Prize, which is a Bee Gees album two years on. Um, with Lonely Days, yeah. the, the, you know, Robin rejoined and they were born anew, if you're yeah. into your Bee Gees history. Sure. Uh, well, I took that record home and just, that was it. I, and I just started uh, listening to it over and over. And, and then my mom bought me the first best of Bee Gees, the gold one with, this is, you know, early seventies, all the pop stuff, uh, which I will still die on that hill all day long. And then my older brother, Tom, who was a guitarist and played in bands and, you know, was the cool brother. Um, uh, he got so sick of hearing Bee Gees records, he gave me three Beatles hand-me-downs. And then that that's really when it started. I The first time I listened to the album Help and I heard Ticket to Ride, I started air drumming to it. Like, f f this is not a scene from a bad movie. I was literally just, and I just didn't even know what I was doing. My arms just started flailing to that beat. And I was like, oh my God, I, this is, I don't know what this is, but I'm all in. And it never stopped. I mean, I just was obsessed with music from that moment on a whole new level. And I, I literally spent my whole life going, I, I can do that. I should be doing that. 
again, youngest uh, child of eight, not a budget for a drum kit involved. No. So I mentioned it a few times over the years, and it was always met with a, well, one day you'll have your own money, and then you can go pursue these <laughs> nonsensical little habits you want to pick up. But did your did your um, your siblings have a record collection? Was that something? Yeah. Did your parents? I mean, yeah. So yeah. you had plenty of. There was always something being played some in some room doing and, something. And right? specifically, two brothers, Tom and Jim. Tom was a he was a rock guitarist. He was in you know high school, and then after high school, was in bands all the time. So he had. Um, Yes, he was a prog rock guy, Zeppelin Records. All you know, he was just rock guy. My brother Jim, who uh, was the next in line, was all about soul music, and so the sound of Philly and Motown and Stax and Earth, Wind and Fire. I mean, so I had th just those two collections alone was an incredible, uh, you know, cross section of so many things. There was the odd Leslie Gore album somebody would have had, and <laughs> you know, my parents had like sing along with Mitch Miller, and my mom was a barbershop singer. Oh. So there was just music in general in the house, um, you know, whether you preferred one to the other. I mean, taste is subjective, but there was always a lot of music. Yeah. Common sense would tell you not to look to Joe and John for this, but time for life lessons from Joe and John. I can't get out of my head pulling up next to you at a, at a stoplight and, and hearing the Bee Gees just blaring and you unapologetically just going, yeah. I'm, I'm owning this. Uh, you put on first of May right now. My eyes will. Well, 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 you'll get a little misty. Yeah. You'll get Trust a little me. misty. Yeah. Life me. lessons, though. So here you are again. I'm not quite sure. Other than you being a really good air guitar or air drummer, mm -hmm. um, where does that first break come from? Where does that like like this is? I'm going to do this yeah. as a job. Well, I, I it's um, it's it, you know it's equal part blind ambition and 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 fantasy land folly and just ignoring reality honestly because i got to i sat at a drum kit in 11th grade for the first time and just sat there and started playing it and just to, for literally 10 seconds and i went oh i knew i could do that oh I, yeah it was just like a relief because i still didn't think okay now i'm on my way because you're in hopkinsville kentucky and and i was obsessed with like like my junior year I just discovered this band called the English Beat, and I was really into a band called U2, and I was into. Uh, by, I identified myself as the guy that wouldn't listen to Journey or Sticks. You sure. know that, that was me in my school, and one of my older brothers, Dave, was a big part of that. He was at Western already, and he would find you know, hey man, listen to this. It's called Stiff Little Fingers, and I would obsessively, anything he told me to check out, I would, and I didn't know anybody my own age that was doing that no I, you know if i would say things like man we should start a band i mean I, there was no one to say that too yeah there was no path in my mind and so uh my so in 1983 uh or no no sorry 82 i saw rem and that was what really that was the beginning of everything because i saw a band in a club that nobody had heard of yet but they were college guys like i knew enough to know they'd all dropped out of university of georgia they went to college and they met and they were doing this thing and i couldn't understand a word that guy said but somehow it really spoke to me and the Chronic Town EP was just suddenly mm -hmm. all I needed in the world. I saw them again a few months later, open for the English Beat at Vanderbilt, April 5th, 1983. Pretty important day in the life of senior in high school, Steve Gorman. And then I really, by then, but you know, the first time you see a band in a club, you go, oh, wait, that's, oh, there is a path. You start here. 
Like, you know, when, like I loved Earth, Wind & Fire. Well, they're in the Sgt. Pepper movie. They have smoke machines. Like, I'm in Hopkinsville. Like, there's no A to Z path, you know? And then, Correct. And then when you get to an age where you can go see rock bands and clubs, you go, oh, wait, oh, hold on, I get it. Oh, it's the Cavern Club. That's what the Beatles did, too. Like, all of a sudden, as silly as that sounds, that's what it took. I had to start seeing bands and clubs to recognize, oh, I could do this. Mm -hmm. they're no, they, just, they just have equipment, and they decided to do it. It's that simple. I could at least try, is what I meant. And so when I got to college, my first thought, fall of 83 at Western, was I got to find guys to be in a band. That didn't happen. But what did happen was my <laughs> older brother, Dave, had for years been running shtick as a, almost like an Andy Warhol-ish. He had a band. They were called Alfred and the Stately Wayne Manors, which in the early 80s. That name was never way, taken. Way so ahead safe. of the Batman craze yeah. of the late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and their thing was they would book tours and always have to cancel it was just these guys that lived at Keen Hall and they'd get drunk and say we're a band. It was just shtick. They literally never, one guy played kazoo and one guy played guitar. That was, and Dave was the singer. And it was all just a joke. But then I got to school and Dave said, hey, wait, we got a drummer now. We can actually do this. And I was still talking up my game because I'd sat at a drum kit for nine seconds. I met a kid with a kit and I said, can I borrow it? He said, yes. And then next thing you know, we're at some camp off campus house and we're learning like seven or eight Ramon songs or trying to a clash song. And then we say, all right, we're playing a new year's Eve party. So new year's Eve, 83 to 84, we go to Nashville, Tennessee, right off of Centennial park at a guy's house and play as Alfred in the stately Wayne manners at a new year's Eve party. And we, I think we had 12 songs. We played them all three times. Yeah. And that was it. I mean, that was it, man. I mean, I, I, you know, and I played the same beat every song. I just sped up or slowed down. Yeah. I, there was not a fill to be played. It was just, you know, that was it. What was the kazoo still part of this? Big, huge, oh, huge, a very big part. Big. We had found a bass player and an amp for the guitar. So we actually were making noise. And, uh, and so we left that party and I look at these guys, it's my older brother and a couple of the friends. And I'm, I'm literally like, guys, we're going to do this. And they looked at me like I was absolutely out of my mind. They were like, what are you talking about? They're all like, I'm graduating in three months. And I'm like, no, we got to be in a band. And it was just, so that went nowhere. We played three years in a row at a New Year's Eve party. And all three years, I would just look around and go, different guys would come in and out. Mm -hmm. But I'd say like, does no one ever want to do this for real? And no one did. And around that same time, actually my first night on campus, I met Tommy Womack and Scott Willis okay. of the Government Cheese Consortium. First frat house party I ever went to, and Tommy's manning the keg. Like, literally, the first... What could go wrong? The first person I met <laughs> as a college student yeah. at a party is this crazy, bizarre, ticking dude from Madisonville. And I was like... Yeah. And by the end of the night, I was like, that guy's the weirdest dude I met, but I love him. You know, it was one of those... We just... And because it was REM, and I had a name tag, and I put Dave Wakeling as my name, who's the singer of the English Beat. And Tommy is the only... He went your name's Dave Wakeling. And I was like, you know who Dave Wakeling is? You know, we had the secret handshake all of a sudden. Yes, he did. And right. And that night he was like, we got to start a band. And so those were the guys I was looking for. Yeah. But I actually wasn't a drummer and they were serious. And so basically without knowing it, he was calling my bluff. He was yeah. like, come on, man, we like the same music and I want to start a band. And I was like, how do I tell this guy? I'm I got a problem not a drummer here. after yeah. telling him I'm a drummer. <laughs> drummer. Crap. And so that conversation went on back and forth for a while. I saw the second government cheese show and I saw Joe Elvis at the drum kit. And trust me when I say this at that time, I, all I thought was, Oh God, I could never do that. Cause you were just killing it. And, and I it, literally, I'd been, I'd played drunkenly at a party twice 
And that was like, as far as I could tell, that was a real drummer playing for real, knew what he was doing. He wasn't like, it wasn't hype. It was just fantastic. And I thought, ah, I kind of blew that one, but, but that guy blows me away anyway. So screw it. So I, I still, I spent all, I spent four years at Western just thinking, ah, I wish I, it just didn't seem to add up. Well, wait, wait, so you have this incredible career with the Black Crows, you've done your own stuff, you got... And Joe was an info. This is stu- this is really good stuff. I think it's possibly the greatest thing I ever heard as a drummer. I never, I didn't know that story. That, that is yeah. fantastic. Because we crossed paths with Steve uh, in the Black Crows days. Uh, I think it was in Atlanta. We were playing the White Dot. Mr. Or something. Crow's Garden days. We were yeah. not the Black Crows yet. That's correct. We saw. I saw you twice there. I saw you at the Metroplex downtown. Oh my gosh! And then later at the White Dot. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Crow's Garden was first, and then that morphed into the Black Crows. Do you so want to talk about that, Eric? Talk to about connect, how that to connect from. So I'm I'm a start my senior year. I'm an RA at North Hall, mm-hmm. and I have decided to double down. And I become a. I decided I was a broadcasting major for no reason other than everybody said you have a good voice, and I didn't know what the hell to do. And I like sports, and ESPN was coming up, you know, and Sports Center was suddenly a thing. And I thought, well, that'd be fun. They have a broadcasting school. Cool. Who knew? So yep. I thought I'd be a sportscaster. Yep. Um, Senior year, and and I went through this sort of existential crisis that whole summer, where I was like, "I'm turning 21. I'm just wasting a Pell Grant. Do I get serious or do I quit? What do I do with my life?" And I decided to full, full heartedly commit myself to to my studies and to broadcasting. And about two weeks into the school year, my buddy from high school who had moved to Atlanta and started playing guitar called me and said. Hey, I'm going to drop out and start a band. Do you want to? And move to Atlanta. And I went, yes. And I just, <laughs> yes, done. And like, I just needed that phone call from the right guy at the right time. And I literally said yes. And and he, we knew each other well. He didn't say really. He went, okay, cool. Well, when can you get here? And I said, how about after Christmas? He goes, all right, great. I mean, that was it. One phone call. Wow. Hit the original call. He was in school in Massachusetts. He said, let's go to Boston and start a band. And I said, yes. Did and you then, ever and finish? Then, and then a few weeks later, he said, actually, let's go to Atlanta. It's cheaper. And I said, yes. I, I didn't care. I was just like, I'm out of Bowling Green, and I'm going to go start a band with a guy that I know. And that, and and then, you know, one thing led to another. He had a bass player. I had a kid, a freshman in my dorm, on my floor named James Hall. And he had a band in Bowling Green called James Joplin and the Park Avenue Dregs. Sure. They were playing Smith's covers yes. at downtown Bowling Green in 1986, which was mind-blowing that someone else was into that music. So yeah. I met this kid. I'm the RA. He's a freshman, and I'm there to guide him. So I said, why don't you drop out and move to Atlanta with me and be my singer? And he said, okay. Okay, yeah. And his parents still hate me to this day. <laughs> and so I moved to Atlanta, and we put a band together called Marry My Hope. And that band moved into a house, and our other roommate was Chris Robinson, mm-hmm. the singer of the now Black Crows, at that time, Mr. Crow's Garden. So that's what got me to Atlanta. I did not graduate I, in fact, mm. audited all those classes the fall of 86 and then just hung out and had like a three-month uh, farewell tour to college. I was an RA in the dorm. I had my own room, and I didn't have to go to class. I wasn't even pretending, and I just had a blast on campus and then went home for Christmas, saved up some money for a drum kit, moved to Atlanta in February of 87, and that's all she wrote. Were your parents supportive uh like yeah man i thought you were so close yeah Yeah, my dad and i weren't speaking at that time Mm -hmm. he had left in 82 and and like literally got in the car and drove away type of scene my mom it's great when you're the eighth because the first seven have already done all this stuff i called my mom and i was like we've got to have a a talk mom i've made a decision (laughs) and i'm thinking i'm about to shake her to the core (laughs) she's trying to remember who you are where are you in line i'm trying to (laughs) and i said i'm gonna 
I, 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 I'm leaving school and I'm going to move to Atlanta with Clint and we're going to start a band. She goes, oh, honey, that's great. Oh, good. And, and I was like, what? What? Like, what? Wait a minute. Where's well, the pushback? In the movie, I'm supposed to have resistance. <laughs> no, yeah. you know? You're going to ruin said, oh. your life. She yeah. goes, oh, I'm so glad you found something you want to do. Because, of course, you know, the adults in your life know you're floundering, even though I'm completely under yeah. control. I've got this broadcasting thing <laughs> knocked down. And they're <laughs> all looking at me going, what are you kidding, dude? You're a not, you're a, you're, you're not, you can't commit to school. What's wrong with you? That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, let's target that era then when when it morphed into the Black Crows. Mm -hmm. uh, because you got your guys' rise to success was absolutely phenomenal. I think I saw you, maybe it was open for Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all this great club talk and I play air drums. No, no, no. You're playing to 17,000 plus people yeah. now. You're selling a million records. You're on the buses. You're a yeah. major freaking hit uh talk about uh you know the robinson brothers you jeff cease those early days who's a nashvillian jeff cease guitarist yep. um how well, did I, you know it gelled and how did you got you know i always love about successful bands like the mm -hmm. black crows when you when it gels it's like you know like a pga golfer you're hitting the shots yeah. you know you got what it takes and it's clicking well i i've always said as as have many people but i i've always certainly ascribed to the fact bands Everybody knows really good bands. Everyone knows great bands that just don't seem to go anywhere. And there's there's so many exterior factors that weigh into that. You know what I mean? But like, I, I'm not. This is not me about to set up a comparison between the Black Crows and the Beatles. But George Martin always said, I didn't sign them because they were good. I signed them because they were exceptional people. He said the chemistry from those four guys. So when they entered a room, it, the electricity changed, and I just wanted to be around that. And George Martin had produced comedy records up until that point. I think he picked up on. There's something so special about this this combination of people. And the point is chemistry is, is everything, especially in young bands. You've all got to believe in something you have no business believing in. And there's got to be whatever it is, you've got to have your own sort of unspoken language. And, and you've got to have all these factors that even if you have them, there's still no guarantee that anyone's ever going to care. But we did have that. The brothers... Right, each other's throats from the day I met them entirely. That never changed. Chalk and cheese yep. personalities. But yep. underneath the surface, they're very similar people. They just present in entirely different, you know, it's heads or tails. Um, I think I was the first guy that played with them that said that decided, like, okay, I'm in too. I, 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 I could read them both really well. At least I think I could. And I think they both, for whatever the reasons are, we just... I think they felt it too. I know they did at that time. I was like, oh, wait, this is actually going to be a band now. Like, okay, well, now we got to go find the next guy. And it took a while. We went through a bunch of bass players. We finally, we, we, we had a, you know, we were a four-piece band for a while. So from the summer of 87, when I started playing with them, through the spring of 88, we were on an incredible learning curve. Like I was just, you know, I'd had a drum kit since March. I played three gigs with Mary My Hope, and then I joined Mr. Crow's Garden and then that fall, you know, I'm six, eight months into owning a drum kit, but that's a great place to be because I'm only getting better at a, re you know, you, you get 90% of your, your, your growth early. It's like in golf, you know, you don't, you don't make a one stroke improvement. You make a 12 stroke improvement when you figure out how to do something right. And music's like that. It's like leaps and bounds. Rich was learning how to play. I was learning how to play and we were doing it together. So we just started playing together in a way that self-taught musicians can. You can't teach people how to feel the way we felt together, if that makes sense. And then I think Chris and Rich and I were all in the same place. We all had a lot of talent. We didn't have control of it. We weren't sure what our strengths or weaknesses were, but we were all in this same sort of boat. 
And, and that's really what propelled us. When we met a guy named George Draculius, who signed us and produced the first two albums, spring of 88, first trip ever to New York City, we're playing a club opening for a band from Austin called The Wild Seeds. And I don't even know who booked the gig. I don't know how we got the gig. I, we drove all the way to New York for one show, because that's what you do. Yep. We got 500 bucks to open for a band in New York City. 500 bucks was everyone's Big. rent for the month. Yep. You know, like, done, let's go. <laughs> And gas money there and back. I mean, it was crazy. And and that night we we played this show and we were really we were still in this rapid growth period. Like we were starting to learn cover. Like we could actually you play your own songs because that's all you can play. And then you're like, wait, let's let's try to play that Stooges song. And then like let's play that let's play that Birds tune. And then we added an Aerosmith song, No More, No More, which is for us that was like playing Tchaikovsky. You know, we were like, <laughs> oh my God, we're playing the hardest song ever written. But we played it that night, and and the guy that signed us, this goes back to my George Martin thing. He he walked in the room, introduced himself. He said, "I'm with A and M Records," and we're like, "Yeah, whatever." And we'd already met A and R people, and you know we're in the scene. But uh, when Rich asked him what he thought, he goes, "Well, you're not very good, but that choice of covers was interesting." It's the first thing he said, and right away we were all like, "Well, he's honest." <laughs> like like we knew we weren't very good, but we felt you know, and this. I used to say we're the worst band in Atlanta, but we're the best band in the world. It's just a matter of time. I sure. really felt that. And so this guy, we hung out and he's a year older than me. I'm a year older than Chris. Chris is three years older than Rich. We're all similarly, you know, me and Rich are four years apart and everyone else is in the middle. And this guy, George, you know, we're, we're having this conversation in New York city and we're dropping, you know, everyone's speaking in Fletch speak, stripe speak, animal house. We're dropping movie lines. We all have the same records growing up. He's just one of us, except he's from Long Island. And again, he just wanted to work. He just liked us and we liked him. And he's the first guy who said at that time, when we started talking with him on the phone, we went back to Atlanta and called him and he took the call and we were like, okay, he actually called us back. That's yep. amazing. Like this guy, uh, George said, okay, here's what you do really well. And here's what you're terrible at. And you guys don't know the difference, basically. And he said, just this is a vibe. It was specifically to me and Rich, he said, the way you play, mm -hmm. he goes, you have a great groove and a great backbeat. But then sometimes you're rushing and trying to rock out too much. And he looked at Rich and he was like, your right hand is your whole thing, but you're trying to do this other stuff like simplify and here's your strengths. He just pointed out what we were good at. And then a second, we he gave us those little bits just tiny breadcrumbs man we just jumped all over it and we trusted him implicitly and that was the the biggest thing so from that meeting in the spring of 88 to the summer of 89 that year the minute we met george we just went from like babe ruth to triple a i mean we we turned into a formidable rock and roll band because we had a guy pointing things out to us that that once he would say them, they were really obvious but we just couldn't see it until he would say hey by the way that no but this yeah
rapid, 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 rapid fire, fire, rapid fire, rapid. Pew, 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 rapid pew, fire. Pew, pew. We like to time to time just fire questions at you. Uh, you don't have to answer it in a rapid response. Uh, they're all over the joint. We're going to get back to the uh, to the history of how you got to where you are. I'm fascinated by this because it's not the the regular uh, history of how you know. Typically, somebody puts in their 10,000 hours, they do this. You had a lot of wonderful things happen, and you had talent. I mean, you had a lot of things happen, uh, but then, yeah, you went from, sure. you know, wow. So, But let's, let's get to some, uh, some questions here and see, see how, how he handles it. Rapid fire. I understand the concept. <laughs> it's never worked, so it's get never worked. The question. It's absolutely never worked. No, it's never worked once. So... Um, you may, I think you just answered a lot of that in your, uh, we always talk about uh, what's in your CD player. What's on, are you listening to CD still? Or are you everything on Apple? Everything's, everything's through the phone. Is in it the through car, the phone? Yeah, all streaming, everything. What's on it right now? What'd you listen coming out? Uh, Adia Victoria, the album Southern Gothic. It came out about a year ago and Illiterate Light. Uh, they have an album out from 2019. They have another album coming out in January. That's a great band. Adia Victoria is from here, Nashville. Illiterate Light is a band from Harrisonburg, Virginia that I absolutely oh, cool. love. What about Wet Leg? What about it? Um, I tend to, well, I dry, when I get out of the shower, the first thing I dry, I step on the towel, bring it from the feet up. So I don't, <laughs> my legs a, aren't wet for long. That's a we great had, answer. We had Mike, we had, back at you, Joe. We had Mike Grimes from Grimey's, our, our, our worldwide sure. another music hill, phenom. Another Hilltopper, longtime friend yeah, of all of ours. Guy from uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I asked him that question. He goes, oh, it's Wet Leg great band and so john and i are like wet leg mm -hmm. like freaking tap that thing once or twice before you know what are you doing and so well, i've never heard of that band any, but it's a it's just a tag on that our era of starting in rock and roll was discovery all those bands you're mentioning were considered alternative music it was a world full of journey and lover boys and foreigners but these u2 bands and the smiths and well the word then was independent Independent, which was a far more authentic word then than it is now. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, to see to see a band like REM or the DBs or Let's Active or Jason and the Nashville at that time Scorchers, yeah, mm -hmm. or Walk the West or Government yeah. Cheese. You guys were absolutely you threw yourselves in there. <laughs> Swing pool cues, you know, sure. from from Atlanta. There were it were bands that were just and, and REM really did. They didn't they didn't do it first, but they paved that road for others to follow. You know, the idea that. We're just doing this our way, and and we're not going to sign just because you offer us a deal. Like we, we we're going to be in control of our yep. of, of what we do and how we do it, and we're going to make it up as we go. And you know, our, I think REM is there's just no possible way to quantify the impact of that band on other bands. Everybody in the South, anyway, in 1983 that owned a guitar on a college campus was listening to Murmur. Anybody that knew what was up, and and so many of those people started bands and certainly tried, and so. That era was really uh, spectacular. And Nashville in the 80s was an incredible rock town. It the was. Here, it's funny. I, you talk to yeah. people and say that, and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm yeah. like, you have no idea. The rock block was real. Did you play uh, slow bar at all? No. You know, do, uh, you, way you, after my time. Way after your time. I, okay. was, ah. I was hanging out here, and I was at Western from 83 through 86 okay. in Nashville on weekends constantly to see bands. Then I moved to Atlanta. And then Mr. Crow's Garden played in Nashville 87, 88, 89, in those years, we'd come up and play with Rumble Circus or with, you know, whoever we would play with. Um, exit in Sal's, Sal's? Sal's or, Rock Block. Sal's Rock Block. And then the end, which back then was called Elliston, Elliston Square. Yep. 
and uh, oh, and then the cannery ones with dreams so real. You know, oh, we were playing big all around. stuff, man. Yeah, those are great days. And the Nashville, we would. I mean, it was. You know, we're in Atlanta, which was a vibrant, crazy, great rock scene. It's an hour from Athens, which speaks for itself. But Nashville was always a thrill because you were going to go to the Gold Rush late. You were going to shoot pool. There was going to be a bunch of freaks in there. It was always a blast to come up here and play. And and uh, New York, Los Angeles, we all had major major labels. If you were on a major label, yeah, uh, they moved to Nashville. So it was it was one of the most creative time. It was pre internet. So all you had was what you what you saw in the clubs. Yep. And so going out to the clubs was big. And for a band, that's how you can make a living. And it was just, I, I it's just an unbelievable. Our era was one of the greatest eras of eras. It's it's very true. And so you're able to do that. And uh, later, uh, you were able to to have your own sports talk radio show. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Steve Gorman Sports on Fox Sports, I think, right? It was. And to to be able to scratch that itch. Um, so what would be your your dream, whether foursome, dinner? I got to believe there's, uh, you know, guys that you just, you, you big sports fan. It, you know, it, maybe it's Tom Brady. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, gosh. No, I mean, it's it de- depending on the day. You know, I have nine different answers, of course. But if I'm going to sit down at dinner with folks, I mean, Kareem is, is a I, I grew up a diehard Lakers fan. Just to annoy my older brother, they were playing the, at that time, Baltimore Bullets on TV. Wes Unsold. And so, you damn straight, <laughs> man. Elvin Hayes. Can you Wes imagine Unsold, they had the, that name? They they actually had that nickname, yeah, which yeah. which they, Incredible. you know, well, uh, get rid of. Wes Unsold from, from Louisville, the baby bull. Incredible. Oh, there you go. All right. I, if I'm not mistaken, rookie of the year and MVP of the league. How often does Boy, that, that happen? Doesn't happen. Yeah. At the same time. Right. Um, just Kareem. to annoy my brother, I said, well, I'm for the Lakers. And and it's, it stuck. Like, I just decided I'm a Lakers fan. So this is 71, 72. So by the time they got magic, I was fully and I was already on board. But then that just took it to these new heights. But Jabbar has always been one of my f- most mm-hmm. fascinating people. He's a, I think he's a brilliant guy. And obviously... My first pick over Michael Jordan, if I'm drafting my all-time, if I want a team in any era, I'm taking that guy because his game works in any era of basketball. I will die on that hill. I'm ready to take on anybody in a physical confrontation that wants to argue that point. Um, so I'd say Jabbar. I would say uh, I, I would – there's nothing wrong with hanging out with, like, say, I don't know, Ringo Starr would be good. Okay. Pleasant company. I actually uh, – spoiler alert, I do know the man. Okay. We've spent time together. But I would love to see him. And it's funny. I I asked him once. I said, um, "What was it like in '66 when you you guys are the biggest thing in the world, and you like you've just made Revolver, which you knew was this entire new trajectory of music? Liverpool is the dominant team in English soccer, and you guys won the World Cup." And he looked at me and goes. Oh, I never paid attention to that. He goes, I don't like football. I don't care. He goes, you think the Beatles were paying attention to football? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. You're bigger than the World Cup. My bad. My fault. What a silly good question. Point. Yeah. As, as you can see, our rapid-fire questions never work. Um, uh, catch up. <laughs> Perfectly said. Perfect. So another big day had to be when you played with Jimmy Page. You're sitting there on the drums mm-hmm. and Jimmy Page is playing with you guys. And uh, this was Black Crow's era. And it was uh, the live from the Greek theater. Mm-hmm. Was that that album? Yeah. And uh, it's just great. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's as if you had, were meant to cut that record all along. That had to be a big day. It, it was, it was pretty great. Um, and I will be very quick with that. Yeah. Highlight of my, as far as that's the one time in my career, if you want to call it that, where 
the dream you think it's going to be is actually real. Like this is as fun as I always thought it was going to be fun to be in a band. Like my band was, we had a lot of laughs. The Black Crows, it was, it was fun. And then it was awful commingling at all times because you have two guys fighting all the time. And then you've got a lot of other issues, personality issues with the band. You know, you're in a, you're on stage for two hours and then you're in a band for 24 hours a day. <laughs> and, and we didn't handle a lot Never of thought of it. That, we, those we, terms. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty troubling. And, and to your point earlier, we didn't, we didn't do 10,000 hours. We didn't meet in the want ads. It wasn't drummer wanted, bassist wanted. It was two brothers and then one of their brother's best friend. That's how that band started. And then we got other guys and they had to be really good friends too, or it wouldn't work. Like we didn't understand separation and boundaries on any level. So it was just a powder keg at all times. That said, we still had fun and we're in, but, but, but everyone at least initially was able to keep, we're focused on the band. Well, the band's got to be great. That was the priority. And we pulled that off. When the Jimmy Page thing happened, we met him in 95. Uh, he came to see us in London. We had opened for Robert Plant a few years earlier on our first album. So we knew Robert. And then Robert brought Jimmy into the dressing room at the Royal Albert Hall. Like, we, we're, we're already down with Robert. Like, that's Uncle Bob. We called him that for years. He walks in, and we're all like, Uncle Bob. And then he's like, hello. And who's that with him? All of a sudden, it's like, it goes from our friend Robert to that's fucking Led Zeppelin. You know what I mean? It takes, yeah. It's like, and, and interestingly enough, I will say this. That's been that guy's, those two guys' story forever. Like, if one of them's someplace, it's a night out. If the other guy's there, it's a night out. If they're in the same room together, you want to talk about the electricity changing? Everyone in that room doesn't even know it, but it's just like, oh, my God. It's That's like great. the it's like they're each other's superhero cape yeah. for everyone else. And, of course, they're just sick to death of each other. They love each other, but they're like, oh, God, this guy again. You know, it's like anybody in a band for that long or connected that long. Anyway, we met Jimmy. He loved the band. Two weeks later, we're in Paris. He turns up unannounced at the gig, just like, oh, I wanted to come and see you again. And we're like, okay, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, <laughs> the greatest rock guitarist ever. And before the encore, Chris goes, hey, you want to jump up for one? He goes, sure. He goes, I don't have a guitar. And we're like, well, we got a bunch of them. Come on. So he gets up in, uh, this is in 95. He sits in for the encore. We just do like three blues songs. Standard, just call out the key and let him go. And that was, that's it for me. Apex, I just played some blues with Jimmy Page. I, my job is done here. I, it's never going to be cooler, right? Well, we stayed in touch with him. We would see him occasionally over the years. And then in 99, he asked us, we were going to be on tour in Europe. He put together a charity gig, a one-night gig at a club in London to raise money for this uh, children's fund in Brazil. His wife is Brazilian, and he was very involved in a situation down there. I don't want to misspeak, so I'll just leave it at that. He said, do you guys want to be my band for the night? I need a backup band. And the answer to that is, why, yes, we do. Yes, yes, we can. As accept. a matter of fact, James Patrick Page, we would like to be your backup band. And so we learned like 45, he, you know, and then it's like, well, what do you want to play? He goes, well, I don't know. What Zeppelin songs do you guys like? And then it's like, oh, oh um, mm. uh, so we did like a 45 minute set. We, and we talk about rehearsing a band that was never good at rehearsing, but we were rehearsing our asses <laughs> I off. Bet. All of a sudden. That is so yeah. good. And then, and then someone said, well, how about in my time of dying? And right away I'm like, oh, oh yeah, well, yeah. I'm going to die. You know, that yeah. eight minute drum opus. Forever. Like, Yep. Let's do it. But it's just so bad, too. You mm -hmm. know, it's the greatest feel. And uh, anyway, so that one gig was a blast. You know, and again, that's one of those things. You go to London. We're on tour. It's a night off on our tour. We play this show. And, like, he's got other guests. that like Stephen and Joe from Aerosmith get up and jam with Jimmy. And um, th there was a bunch of people there. But for a 45 minutes, it was Jimmy Page with the Black Crows as his band. We walk off stage, euphoric. What a blast. How cool is that? And then a month later his manager calls our manager and says, Jimmy's wondering if the lads would like to tour. 
And the answer to that is yes, yes they would. Yes, yes we would. <laughs> and uh, and so then we did. We just put together six gigs: three in New York, one in Worcester, Massachusetts, two in L.A. Jimmy Page and the Black Crows. And we recorded the two shows in L.A. And that's where that live album came from. So it's like a great record. Yeah, and it was an absolute blast. So to the to the, getting back to that's those shows were like. Oh, this because we weren't our inner band squabbles all went away. Like it was like we had an entirely different mission statement, which we never knew what ours was. But with Jimmy Page, it was let's just go have a blast and be a badass rock band and 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 support this guy, this music we love, this guitarist we love, playing songs everybody loves. It was it was fantastic. Well, uh, Steve Gorman, rock drumming legend, broadcast brilliance uh, with Steve Gorman Sports and Steve Gorman Rocks. Uh, nationwide on Westwood One and author, you talk about and push it as far as you want to go. Uh, hard to handle the life and death of the Black Crows. Mm -hmm. um, you know things aren't where they were back in those days. So, uh, what what made you want to write the book, and how does that sit with everybody? Um, I I I thought about writing a book for years. The 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 line was always within the band. Like, well, if anyone's going to write a book, it has to be Steve. He's the only one that remembers everything. Because I, <laughs> I and, all and, the time. Because I, I do, and I I would love to not remember everything. I was always like, where do I delete the files in my head for for detail that don't that doesn't help anybody to know that we went from San Antonio to Houston, then back to Dallas. You know, the tour, every minutia, what I just could never. That's what drummers it. do. That's why well, that's, everyone that's else exactly, is weak in the band. That's. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, um, I, I, you know, the, it was a story. I, even as it was happening, like from the from the minute the first album came out, things blew up pretty quickly. I was able to pull away from it to an extent and just go, "This is this is ridiculous. I can't believe this is happening the way it's happening." And then I would watch us, and I don't say them or anything because it truly was us. I watched us make really good decisions. And then make really bad decisions back and forth, like without any sense of the difference. Again, you know, like talk about not knowing strengths and weaknesses. We were always the worst about that. And we had a great manager, tremendous manager. I mean, as good as any I've ever spent time with. We had great producers. We were a great band and we just could never get out of our own way. And it was just this. And and it would be it was emotionally grueling to to feel like we're constantly not living up to where we could where we could go but at the same time i would almost as a way to protect myself i would pull away and go this is fascinating like this is this is insane this is truly crazy you're watching this train wreck yeah. unfold it's a yeah. hell of a train yeah that's no that's exactly right it's like we will we will drive this car into the ditch like no one's business and then at the last second we will put it back on the road and at the, I mean, as the door is closing, we'll run through it and the door will shut behind us. Like it's constantly what that's mixing my analogies or whatever, but, Very well said. It, but it was, it was just that feeling of just nonstop. This, this should be easier. Like yeah. the hard part we have, like the band that has chemistry and that has a spark and that just has this, yep. you just know there's magic. That's what you, that's what bands struggle to find we have that that's the impossible part it's the basic normal just get up and do your job slot a to slot b just and just just make a plan and stick to it like all that stuff we were just impossible with so it was always a, i always saw the story for what it was on some level at the end of the uh second real run of the band the band disappeared for 0203 and 04 so there's three years there where we were dead Second time around, come back with, okay, let's do it right this time. And that held for about a year, and then it started falling apart again, and it just turned into this 
you know, the same old thing, if you will. A few different members of the band. Names were changed, but the stories were the exact same. It just was like, it just felt like it was a hamster wheel. I was like, man, we've already been here. Guys, like, yeah. what's happening? <laughs> At the end, of, we toured in 2013, had a, had a good tour, and that was supposed to be a setup for 2015, 25th anniversary, and, good, and goodbye. We all agreed to that. We all said we got along very well for the most part that whole year. And the whole plan, I mean, this is sitting around planning. 2015 is going to be... Let's finally do it right. Let's 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 put this thing together and tour all over the world and say thank you to everybody and let's say thank you to each other and let's shake hands and let's just get put a nice bow on it because and say, because we all we're 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 not we can't move forward with new music. We don't like each other like that anymore. We're we're at this place, and we all agreed that was the plan. And then about two months after the tour ended, our singer Chris emailed his brother and me to say. Well, if we do that, I need I need to change things. Mm -hmm. Like Steve needs to become a salaried employee and Rich needs to give me half his money. Oh. And you know, 27 years in, I was just like no I'm, no. It's like, okay, well, that's the last conversation I'll have with that guy. Like, like are you out of your mind? Like let's let's look at all the bands in history who've done that. Okay, well there's us. Yeah. <laughs> What, I mean, what do you think? What do you think? God, does somebody get into his head? What, what oh, how sure. does that? Well, I, well, I mean, look, look. I you know, it's there's a lot of stuff in, you know, internally we would all kill each other. And then externally, of course you have each other's backs. Right. And, and so I've said things in the past, it's easily to misconstrue, like I'm tossing bombs at them. I'm not, I mean, we, we had a really long, crazy run together. I think that, I think that the issues that kept those guys at each other's throats were just ultimately too much for everybody else. And I think Chris just wanted to be, I mean, everybody in the band spent years going, do I still want to be here? Mm -hmm. I'm the only one that's said that in a book, mm -hmm. like talked about how difficult it was. And that every year I was like, I think this is the year I got to leave. We were all doing that. It, they haven't said that, but trust me, it's this is what it is. They've said it in their own way. And they sure. were certainly saying it behind the scenes. Somebody was quitting that band every three days for years. <laughs> so um, it just, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to speak for him. I just, and, and I, and at that time I'd realized, well, there's no point in trying to understand it. It is what it is. I know that that's, that's a great way for me to say, okay, never again, a great plan didn't happen later. I'm just going to move on with it. Cause you know, at, at that time I'm like, I'm looking at 50 going, I can't be 50 waiting for this guy to figure out what makes sense for right. his life. By that point, it won't make sense for mine, et cetera, et cetera. So it was easy for me to just move on. And I, and it was funny, he did that. And I had just started with Fox Sports Radio. So I have this nationally syndicated sports talk show. And, and uh, you know, that, that was nice. It was like, okay, well, I'm just going to focus on this then. I'm not going to wait around for next year's tour. And, you know, we would have been putting a lot of energy into setting that tour up. And suddenly I didn't have to do that. So I was like, great. I just, I'll just be, I'll just have one job now. For yeah. A while. You have another great. gig. To, and by the way, you're and, passionate about and very good at. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. So that was, that was helpful. And then a couple of years after that, our, our piano player, Ed died, uh, the longtime keyboardist in the band and, and just all of that fallout, everything, just all of the craziness, it all settled. Like it was just like a ton of dust over two or three years settled. And that story I'd always been kind of thinking about, it just made sense. I felt like, Okay, I'm not angry. I'm not. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm. I'm. I'm sad, and I'm really appreciative. And those those emotions I felt were a good place to write from, and an authentic place to write from. I didn't want to write a book where I was mad, like again, this happened, and it should have been that you know. And I I let all that go, uh, with some help. I finally started going to therapy. Like, oh God, where what? 
First time someone said go to therapy, it was like 1993, and I look back like, boy, that really would have been good. That would have been good had I taken that hey, advice. I get it now. <laughs> um, and I, and I just got to a place, and that's an ongoing thing. It never, you know, just in whatever, you know, you never stop learning. Hopefully, and hopefully, you don't stop learning about yourself. And so, the last decade for me has just been a very proactive. Where am I? How does this fit? How do I see things? Am I good? You know, just because I'm not thinking about this band and how to keep it afloat. I'm just worried about me and my family. It's a pretty nice way to live. Joe and John have come to the fork in the road. So let's take a fork in the road. And I'm going to take a kind of a rapid fire thing where Joe would ask this and then I steal his question. What advice would you give um, your 18-year-old self if you could go back and tell your 18-year-old self, wow, now I know this, what would that be? Don't kid yourself. Don't, don't convince yourself things aren't what you think they are. Don't, you know, I, I'm a great team player, but you can take that too far. If you go against your central nervous system, right or wrong, you're, you're setting yourself up for a lot of heartache and confusion. And there were moments along the way in every realm of just my life, not even the band, but the band certainly is the easiest one to look at where I'm like, wait, this isn't right, but everyone else seems okay with it. And I'm, I'm a team guy. And you know, you, if you start doing that, you slip down a slope really fast. You got to yeah. trust, you got to trust your gut. And if you yeah. go against your gut, that's okay. As long as you acknowledge it and keep up with it and recognize why you did it, you've got to, you've got to be very brutally honest with yourself and accept why you're doing what you're doing. And, and the, that would have made uh, my central nervous system would have enjoyed the next couple of decades a lot easier if I'd just been able to maintain that simple thing. That should be chapter six and how to succeed in the music business. Because mm -hmm. sometimes you have, you have a manager, but sure. you guys manage yourselves right. too because uh, you're you know, so well-known. Mm -hmm. You guys are like the 85 Bulls. I mean, you know, what do you do at that point? So fast forward now, you're still playing. You're still sounding great. Trigger Hippie mm -hmm. is the new band. The record sounds great. Thank you. Uh, I've caught you guys live twice. Uh, talk about that lineup. It's totally different than the Black Crows. Yeah, Trigger Hippie started at the Family Wash in 2005, mm -hmm. uh, 2004. I moved to Nashville in the summer of 04 and almost immediately had a jam over at the family wash and I met the bassist, Nick Govrick. Uh, and, and the first time we played together, we literally were like, we sound like a rhythm section, like, like not two guys jamming, but we're really locked in. <laughs> and I could just, I felt we, we really felt that great connection, which you don't get, you can have great jams with people all the time, but we literally were looking at each other going, man, Whoa, this is something. And, and we used to get together and play, uh, 2004, five and six. And we would always say like, man, we got to, we got to do a band, but the crows were, I was touring all the time at that point. He was work. He's a chef in town at the university club for those years. Mm. Uh, we both, you know, I have two kids. He has three, you know, life is in the way of, you know, and, and, you know, we're, he's in his thirties. I'm in my forties. And it's like, we'll start a new band really like for real. No, that's not, that's the stuff of young men. And, um, but at some point by like 2010, we were hanging out and he, played me just a couple of, he, he, he's a songwriter and he goes, well, I got, I got a few songs I think are pretty good. And, and I loved him. And even I am like, Oh, the bass player's got songs. Here we Here go. We you go. Know. <laughs> okay. And he played me two songs and I went, okay, let's find a singer. I'm in, let's go. Cause yep. they were great. And, and he's one of my favorite writers and we just started playing around and, and it was always, 
it, you know, it's weird when you start a band with a rhythm section, you are starting in reverse. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're back, you're, you're going backwards in the, in the, in the left lane. Um, but so it took a long time to find people that wanted to dial in and, you know, we put a lineup together, kind of fell in by accident and made a record in 14 and toured and had a good time. And it was clearly not a lineup that was built to last, but it was great. Uh, when that ended, Nick and I still were like, man, there's, we're, we still want to do this. Like, this is just left, getting yeah. started. Now, I, when I say I want to do it, I don't want to go play 200 shows a year. I'm not going to go get in a van and tour around and, and, and lose money and, get bad sleep. I mean, I'm 57. And, and even when I was 47, that was not something I was interested yeah. in doing. Uh, but making music with people I really love, and we have a great time doing it. And it's a good band. And we're still playing original music. That's all I know. Like I, I couldn't, I wouldn't, I couldn't be a touring drummer for another artist. I don't mm -hmm. think unless they were, unless it was someone, unless it was a band I really loved. I did a year on the road with a Welsh band called Stereophonics, great friends. And I love the band. That was easy. But if, if an artist I wasn't familiar with was like, hey, do you want to go do this giant tour? I'd be like, man, I, you, eh. I, I can't learn 40 songs and play it with any heart or conviction. I just don't know how to do that. I'm not that kind of drummer. Sure. Um, so it's got to be my own thing, basically. And so Trigger Hippie scratches every itch musically that I still need scratched is the shortest way to explain a long story. I love the vibe of, of, of trigger happy, uh, uh, hippie. I, I like the, uh, it just, it's uh, whimsical is probably too light a word, but the minute you put some of the songs on I, and, and her voice and, and your rhythm and all that, I don't know. It just feels yeah. easy breezy and right. hard, hard to be in a bad mood. Hippie, don't want to bring you down. Uh, John nailed it with it's just a band with a vibe. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know her name. The gal singing out Amber for, Woodhouse. Holy cow. Yeah. Amber Woodhouse. You you will know that name here one day mm -hmm. everywhere. Uh, it's just fantastic. And uh, you know, everything's gone from zero to a hundred in your life, from the band mm -hmm. to Fox Sports. You know, you didn't have a you you and I both had a broadcasting history at Western Kentucky University, mm -hmm. but you didn't have a sports show in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and then Evansville, Indiana. No. Now let's get this well, guy. Well, He's, well, I started at the zone went, here. Bam. I mean, sure. I, and then, and then moved to the game and, and that was, but still, I, but uh, nationwide then that no, was great. I know. Well, and, and talk about getting in, thrown in over your head. You that know, was like, great. That, that was very unexpected. And it was, um, the guy called me and said, I was at, I was at 1025 The Game. I was doing an afternoon and one hour in the afternoons. That was it. And I get a, a call from this guy introducing himself. And he's like, I, you know, my name is Bruce Gilbert. I'm with Fox Sports Radio. And I'm thinking it's a joke. And he goes, hey, I'd love to talk to you about your show. And that only, he only heard about me because Terry Bolger at Channel 4 mm -hmm. did a, one of those stories on me. What's this drummer talking sports for? You know, one of those An amazing nice little four-minute number on Channel 4 News. And somebody at, 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 uh, at iHeart saw it and sent it to this guy. You know, it's like, who knows how he found it? And he just called me, and we started a conversation. And he said, what do you want to do? And I, and I said, I want to build a studio on a tour bus, and I want to go play, at the time, 
the Black Crows were about to go out on our tour in 2013. Yes. I said, we're going to tour in 13 and 15, and I want to do a sports talk radio show from a studio on a bus in the afternoon, and I want to play a gig at night. And, of course, I didn't know that until he asked, and I just blurted it out. And he goes, that would be amazing. We That's can perfect. make that happen. And, yeah. Oh, and, shoot. And they actually, as it turned out in 2014, they could, the technology wasn't quite there to make it. You could do that right now easily. But at that time, it was still like, okay, maybe. So he put me on the air in January of 14 on a Nationwide. And the goal was, okay, well, if you're going back out, and we have a year to figure out how to do this. And we'll wrap a bus. We'll get a sponsor to give you. So, Honestly, Perfect. all I was thinking was, I'm going to have my own bus. That's all I, I <laughs> yeah. just, I just wanted to do one Black Crows tour on my own bus. And if I had to do a radio show and get sponsors to make that happen, damn it, I'm doing, you know, whatever it took. And so we had this great plan, but then the band blew up, as I said, and it was like, all right, well, something else will happen. Was that the way. Southern Harmony tour? What's that? With that tour that I'm trying to think, what record was out in 13 or 14? Oh, no, nothing. No, no Southern Harmony was 92. That's, that's Was it really? Album. You were so ah, close. That was album. high you the were whole just time. Not even in no, the, the last, Jesus God. The last <laughs> record, the last original music record the band put out was in 2009. And then it was called uh, Before the Frost. And then we did a an album in 2010 called Crowology, which was acoustic versions of a bunch of the old music. Okay. But, um, but no, we were just touring to tour in 13. And talk about, uh, Steve Gorman rocks. Uh, now, now, that, now you're the guy, like I used to be playing everybody in the world. Is that yeah. still fun? Is that fun? Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's changed a lot since COVID obviously, you know, I'm, I do the show from home, um, because everybody does. And I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm not sitting in a studio for all five hours listening to all that music. I was at first when we started the show. It was live, and I'm, I'm I was in there at night. Um, it's a it's a standard classic rock show. That's not a format that anyone's going to come in. You know, you're not reinventing the wheel. No. I mean, that is a that music's never going away, and people want to hear that music. They want to hear, you know, if there's if there's two thousand songs in our total playlist, you know, six hundred of them get most of the focus. I mean, or whatever. I don't know. I'm just making those numbers. <laughs> up. No, that's probably pretty correct. But it's but you know it's it's just a thing of there are folks that just want to hear that music and God bless them. Cause, uh, and, and it's been funny for me. I mentioned earlier, I identified myself as a kid that hated journey and hated sticks and hated that. And then of course, all these years later with all of the context of what was happening in the moment removed, like I was sitting in the studio the first week we were on the air and that song by journey lights was on. Yeah. And I was like, when the lights, na, 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 na. I'm just sitting there going. And by the end of it, I'm like, I would have had a lot more fun in high school if I had just accepted Journey. Like yeah, all those, sure. those, you know, I, I was missing the big concerts. These, the, I'd be at the party and this song would come on and I'd leave. I'd like walk outside ah. instead of realize, no, no, I could probably go chat up a lady right now with this song. <laughs> I, I missed a lot of the fun. You could have slow danced to yeah. open arms. That's what I'm saying. Oh, can you imagine? There you go. What, faithfully, what a different, right? Faithfully, you just. I, <laughs> oh, you I never not like when that comes on. My wife her ears start to bleed yeah. and I, I actually, I love it. I yeah. just do it. I know I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not going to turn it off. You got to wear shades. Brought to you by the Ford Motor Company and the 2024 Ford Mustang, which is now in Joe and John's driveway. See, that's what it would sound like for if we had Come a on. Ford sponsor. Yeah, yeah. See, we we, we don't we we keep, we're shocked that, that Ford's not our sponsor. We like to end with, look, you have done it all. Uh, the, the success you've had uh, on on many decades, many levels. What's left? You, what 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 is on that bucket list that you just you haven't checked yet? Um, I think there's always more great songs to 
write and record and play. I mean, that that that's still, you know, Trigger Hippie just recorded three songs two weeks ago, just starting oh, okay. some new music. Mm -hmm. And and walking out of the studio the second day, I was just floating, man. I mean, that, that never changes. Cool. Like, this is great, you know, and this is just fun. It, it just it just feels like that's 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 what I, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, whatever I'm doing otherwise, that's when I feel most like me, like I'm... I'm in a band, I'm playing drums and we're putting new music together. And this is awesome. That's, that's fantastic. Um, there, I'm not going to write another book. I mean, I, I don't have some <laughs> other grand story to tell that I would care to. Um, uh, I do have, um, as bizarre as this sounds and I can't give any details. I have two television shows in development. Terrific. Oh, do tell. I can't. Okay. Um, but, and so that's pretty all consuming, uh, mm -hmm. in, in fits and starts, you know, like, I have a couple of weeks where I'm just completely focused on that, but those projects, there's so many cooks in those kitchens that, um, you know, and, and being someone who's on the creation side of those, you're on everyone else's timetable. So they're just taking the time they're going to take, take their own sweet um, time. And, so every, and yeah. you know, every, I'd say I probably, uh, for one week a month, if you averaged it out, I'm really solely focused on one of those two things. But it's over time. It's just moving along. But if either one of them goes into production, then it's all consuming. Then you're just, that's it. So we'll see if if that happens. That's really exciting. What what would be a binge thing uh, series that, uh, that that kind of like the latest thing? The, well, the the best thing I've seen in years. Um, I think this. There's only two seasons. It, the last one hit in 2018. It's called Patriot on I Amazon Prime. Just absorbed that last. Four days, my it's, wife and I. It's the greatest show it is of all time. So clever. It's unbelievable. I, I'm freaking out that you said that because I go, well, he's not going to say Patriot. It's two oh, seasons. Oh, it's my it's, favorite. I, I've been talking why do, about why it do people not know? for four yeah. years. Amazon did nothing to promote it. It is. Do you know what we're talking about, Joe? No, I'm too busy watching Ozarks. <sighs> I, I, this Patriot, the, the, the cleverness, the, 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 the subtlety. Well, and, uh, and, the, and the way it's shot. The, it's and just, the heart, too. And by the way, I, I describe it as it's the saddest comedy you'll ever see or it's the funniest tragedy you've ever seen. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, honestly, how about this for pitch? It's about PTSD and depression and it's hilarious. And it's, and, and, it's, and family <laughs> and loyalty and blind loyalty and, and, and where the boundaries are. It's, it's a, it, the context. You can't if you try to explain it, you ruin it. But all those themes in an entirely unexpected context, and it's got there's a musical component that's mind blowingly brilliant, and it's just a, it's a universe unto itself, like no other show I've ever seen in my life. And I am dying on that hill. It's my favorite show of all time. It Patriot. is. It yeah. Patriot. It's a Netflix. We're we're going down. Amazon, no, Amazon, Amazon Prime. I've right? seen every episode at least six times. No kidding. You have to watch I it. I will now. You got to watch them all twice. Watch every episode twice before you move on. And now oh. we're going down the rabbit hole of listening to podcasts with characters mm -hmm. and the writers and so forth, just just to get. Oh, the Some Leslie Claret. Of, there's a yes. podcast of the, one of the characters, not the main character, but but a, a significant character has his own podcast as that character. Uh, it's it's just this whole universe that's there to be discovered that's never been promoted appropriately. It may be one the first or second episode, and when his father of this of this man who's a, a spy gone bad, just kind of anything that everything bad that can happen to a spy. Um, when he's talking to the other uh, uh, lawmaker and he, and he makes the point of um, my son now is he's a folk singer and he's he's writing a little too literally. Yeah. And and you're like, well, that's 
what does that mean? And then once you watch those scenes unfold, yeah, I'm in I'm in tears. Oh, the, I, I can't incredible. I can't even hold, we we rewind it and go. Yeah. Anyway, we could go on and on and on. Yeah. on but good stuff. I'm hoping that you one of your shows that you're working on would it be semi autobiographical maybe aging um, rock star that has yeah, have heavily fictionalized you're right what you know right? It. yeah no it's a there's some heavily <laughs> okay fictionalized uh sort of band stuff not not primarily right are you okay. going to internally combust <laughs> I, I i don't have any plans to but i learned a long time ago say yes until it's time to say no so so we'll close with um a great Steve Gorman moment. It might have been back in that 13 tour-ish. Uh, Steve lives in Nashville. And so you guys, I'm trying to think why you would have come over on my Joe Elvis show. And you guys were playing in Nashville. And so um, had never, you know, met Steve after the Black Crows explosion. Came over well, and he was on. just we, we, absolutely We hung terrific. at the dojo a few times. Oh, yeah. All through that. But I mean, okay. you know, on my... That's a haze. On the uh, 100,000 watt mother, oh, right. who probably bought him a car or two, we played the Black Crows so much. Um, it was great to have you live, you know, to have you on the radio. So, actually, Steve. It's actually three cars. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Steve comes in the studio and was just very gracious, just very professional, as you can tell listening to the show. The guy was born to be in front of a mic as well. So, uh, you've just, you've, you've just nailed everything that's come your way. So, I know this new vision of your TV shows is going to work out. Well, we'll see. I, I, I certainly hope so. It's, it's a blast. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always at my most centered and my happiest in the, or, you know, developing like just the idea. I love harnessing something and trying to make sense of it and shaping it. You know, it's like with a record, once you release it, it's not yours anymore. It's everybody's. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the external forces, dictate how it's received, what your life turns into, et cetera, et cetera. And like I said, I, I mean, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen in the music world. TV's a whole nother level, man. Like to say I have two shows in development. I mean, I do, I have partners, we're developing, but there's no guarantees anything will happen, but that's okay because this part is exhilarating as all get out. And it's, it's been a blast. Well, check out his stuff. Trigger Hippie. You can uh, explore that music. Uh, hard to handle life and death of the Black Crows. Get yourself a copy of that uh, as well. And we look forward to the, to the new stuff coming out. What a big one, man. You know, you said when we were going to start this podcast journey, by the way, this is episode, I believe, 26. So we're really at the halfway, half year point. Half of what? Of, well, just of having <laughs> once a week. Yeah, what have we done? But if you're, if you're actually getting once a week, that's pretty good. That's pretty it's good. good. As man. much as everybody flakes See, and we're things big... come up and, you know. <laughs> we, we're past 1,000 downloads, uh, 10 countries. Thousand. I don't know I don't know what countries they would be in. It's fun to it's, do. It's, it's fascinating. People love But Nashville. you mentioned, hey, I, I know some people in the music. I know this guy, he played for the Black Crow. I said, we'll never get those people, Ever. And yet, here he's sitting here today. Sitting. So thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. It is a pleasure. All Thanks right. for having me. Steve um, Gorman on the Second Cup of Joe. And John! It's the Second Cup of Joe and John as their guests expound on any and all topics within the realm of decency. Want to be a sponsor? Let a TV and radio guy help build your business. Email the show, John at gmail.com. Now... Hold on tight and grab another second cup of Joe and John.